And he went on his way rejoicing. That's a very positive and uplifting statement, isn't it? He went on his way rejoicing. It is in reference, of course, to the eunuch who went on his way rejoicing after certain requisites had been met. And this morning, we're going to talk about, as we look at one of the great examples of conversion we find in the book of Acts, we are going to examine the requisites that led to his rejoicing. And as we do, I'd like for you to think about whether or not you can leave this auditorium this morning as the eunuch did, as he went on his way rejoicing. Are you able to say that you can go on your way rejoicing? Many can already because they know they've done what the eunuch did. They, they know the, the requisites have been, have been met. But if you haven't met those requisites, there's no question about the fact because of the clarity of this example and so many others that could be cited in the book of Acts, you can indeed leave this auditorium this morning rejoicing. We're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities, 
till he came to Caesarea. That's the reading of those verses, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, reading from the New King James translation. It's a great example of conversion. So much here that is so clear in terms of what it tells us about, as we mentioned a moment ago, the requisites for rejoicing. And he went on his way rejoicing. But why was he able to go on his way rejoicing? What were the requisites or the requirements that that this Ethiopian nobleman, this Ethiopian eunuch met that enabled him to go on his way rejoicing? That's what we want to look at briefly this morning. And the first of those requisites would be he was religious. He was religious. No question about the dedication of this man who was either an Ethiopian Jew or a proselyte of the gate to Judaism, but he had traveled some 1,500 miles to be at one of the major feasts that the Jews were required to attend, Passover. And so he was returning from his journey a very religious man, who would doubt it? Do you know how long it would have taken him to have made this journey? It's been estimated some 63 days or so for him to fulfill this requirement, to go to Jerusalem to worship. He was worshiping according to all the light that he had at that time. He had not been privileged at this point to hear what he was about to hear. But because he was religious, that was an important requisite that ultimately enabled him to go on his way rejoicing. You see, there are a great many people today who will not give this book the time of day, so to speak, the Bible. They will not. They will not examine it. They have no interest in spiritual things. They are not interested in religion, pure or otherwise. James defines pure religion for us in James chapter 1, verse 27. But they're not interested, tragically, in any kind of religion. Materialism is their religion. They are not spiritually inclined. And yet, this man was. Think about this for a moment. From the text we read... When this man returned, or as he returned in his chariot to Ethiopia, having traveled 1,500 or so miles in order to worship, what was his attitude as he traveled home? Well, I've got that behind me. Boy, I can't believe it. It will be a while before I have to do this again, but I've done it. I did it. But, you know, forget forget it. I'm back to being uh, the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia, Candace, and uh, I've fulfilled my requirement. Forget about religion. Now that I've been there, I'm out in the world again. No, he was reading a copy of the role of the book of Isaiah. He was reading Scripture on his way home, having traveled this great distance to worship. This man obviously was a very religiously minded individual who was still 
vitally interested. Either he had brought a copy with him or he had obtained it at Jerusalem while there, but he had a copy of the scripture of Isaiah, and he was reading. That was to his credit, and it was a requisite that ultimately would lead to his rejoicing. But there's something else that's vitally important as a requisite, and that is that not only was he religious, but he was also receptive. You see, one can be religious, obviously, and be very religious, but so cemented in that particular religion, however false and contrary it may be to the pure word of God, that that individual is not receptive. Religious, but not receptive. That's a distinct possibility. In fact, we see it today, time and again, tragically, and have seen it all of our lives, not only as a possibility, but as a reality. Religious very comfortable with my religion. Don't try to change my religion. I remember being on a campaign over in New Zealand many years ago. And before we went out door knocking, we were advised by those who lived in New Zealand that when you knock on someone's door, what you can expect to hear from the majority, most likely, when you tell them why you're there, they will say, I got, I've got my own religion. I've got my own religion. That's what they will say. And then, chances are the door will close. <laughs> because they've got their own religion. They may be religious, but they do not want anyone to rock their religious boat <laughs> at all. And so receptivity coupled with being religious is a vitally important requisite. And thankfully, this Ethiopian eunuch had both. Because when you go back and look again at the verses that we have just read, an angel of the Lord, verse 26, that's the beginning of our account, spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. We'll say more about desert in just a little bit. But incidentally, this is on the heels of what had been taking place at Samaria, where Philip had preached down at Samaria, remember? The earlier part of Acts 8, and then Peter and John came down in order to lay hands on those who had been baptized, many of them, so that miraculous gifts could be in the church there. There was a tremendously successful gospel meeting going on, if you will, at Samaria, and yet, in the middle of that, In the middle of that, an angel of the Lord tells Philip to leave there and begin a journey that will ultimately, by the providence of God, bring him into contact with one man. And Philip didn't question that. No indication that Philip said, well, Lord, do you not understand what's going on here in Samaria? We've got a wonderful thing going here. Many people are being converted. No indication that he gainsayed it all. He just gainsaid it all. He just he just left, which is to Philip's credit that he respected the will of God. But obviously, God had something in mind to bring Philip the evangelist together with this Ethiopian eunuch, and so he comes. 
And he is sitting in the chariot, verse 28, reading Isaiah the prophet. Again, indicating how religious he was. Then the Spirit said to Philip, and notice please, nowhere in this account do you see the Spirit saying anything to the eunuch. Never do you see it. Wouldn't this have been a wonderful opportunity for God through his word to have demonstrated the direct operation of the Holy Spirit in conversion, if indeed the direct operation of the Holy Spirit in conversion was valid? If, as many contend today, that you have to have some direct operation of the Spirit in order to manifest that you have been truly saved, that you've had a saved experience, wouldn't this have been the obvious occasion for this to have occurred? And yet nothing is in this text about that. The eunuch has no idea that the Spirit has said anything to anybody. And so, it's the preacher who comes at the direction of the Spirit here and is told, go near and overtake this chariot. And verse 30 says, Philip what? Meandered over to the chariot. No, Philip ran. Philip ran. Not only did he not question the instruction that he had been given by God at Samaria and questioned the success that he was leaving behind him, he went, and then when he was told to go near and overtake this chariot, he ran to him. And obviously, the eunuch was reading aloud. He was reading aloud from Isaiah. And Philip heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked this question, verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? That gets us to the receptivity factor here as a requisite. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch responded by saying what? How dare you ask me what I'm reading? Do you know to whom you are speaking? I have charge of all of Queen Candace's treasury. I'm an educated man. I have been to Jerusalem. I've traveled 1,500 miles to worship. How dare you? Who are you to ask me? Do you understand what you are reading? Now that could have been his attitude because self-righteousness and religious pride can many times be a barrier to receptivity. But no, the response was this. How can I unless someone guides me? What an attitude. You know, Jesus said, except one becomes as a little child, he can in no wise enter the kingdom of God. That's exactly what you're reading about here. Someone who is about to enter the kingdom of God. And one of the requisites for his entering the kingdom and going on his way rejoicing will be his receptivity, his childlike spirit. His teachableness, the fact that he was not too proud to ask for guidance. You see, he didn't have what all of us have at our disposal today. He didn't have the big picture. He didn't have the completed word of God. But he was about to hear, thanks to his receptivity, exactly what he needed to hear, to go on his way rejoicing. Then verse 32 says, the place in the scripture which he read was this, from Isaiah chapter 53, of course. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he opened not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. That is a partial description from Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. Identified as Jesus the Christ. No one from the time Isaiah by inspiration penned those words until the time the Lord came and fulfilled them. Was there anyone who in any way, shape, form, or fashion fulfilled the words of Isaiah the prophet as did the Christ? And oh, how much could be said and how much has been said about the extent and the nature of that suffering and his willingness to submit to it in order that you and I might have opportunity to go on our way rejoicing. That the eunuch might have opportunity to go on his way rejoicing. As a sheep to the slaughter, a lamb silent before his shearer. His humiliation as he stood before Pilate, having been through the trials, the mistrials, we should say that he endured, all the illegalities that the Jews committed in trying him. And then, and then his justice or his judgment was taken away. Pilate was ready to let him go, and yet the mob cried so furiously and fervently for his crucifixion that his judgment of innocence was taken away. And finally, Pilate capitulated to the mob. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And then there's verse 35, very significant text. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, right where he was reading, he could begin right there and preach Jesus to him, because the prophet was prophesying of Jesus, the suffering servant. And obviously, as many, if not most, if not all of you have heard many times, we need to understand and appreciate, and we can know something of the detail as to what it involves to preach Jesus. Before we look at that in this text, when you go back earlier in this same chapter, back to Samaria, where Philip went down to Samaria, Acts 8 verse 5, that verse, remember, says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Acts 8 35 says, beginning from the same scripture, he preached Jesus. Well, obviously, to preach Jesus is to preach Christ. To preach Christ is to preach Jesus. Both at Samaria and now to the eunuch, Philip is preaching Jesus. He's preaching Jesus. Back in Acts chapter 8, when we go to verse 12 of Acts 8, at Samaria, but when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached what? Christ. But the verse doesn't say Christ here. The verse here says, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's the church of Christ. Philip preached about the church of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God as it is called. And the name of Jesus Christ, 
That is the authority or salvation by his authority and by no one else's authority. Then what happened at Samaria? Both men and women were baptized. So we've learned then from the Samaritan experience that preaching Christ involved preaching the church for which Christ shed his blood. It involved preaching the authority of Christ and the salvation that is by that authority and by no other. And the practice, the worship, the life that we're to live by that authority. Remember Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Philip preached the name of the Lord Jesus. He preached the name of Christ. He preached the authority of Christ. Therefore, we cannot do anything without the authority of Christ in whatever we do in our spiritual lives. But preaching Christ to the Samaritans obviously involved preaching baptism, didn't it? Because when they heard him preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Therefore, we conclude that to preach Christ, as Acts 8, 5 says Philip did, had to involve preaching baptism. Would we expect to find anything different following the statement in Acts 8, 35 now with the eunuch? Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him, preached Christ to him. Did preaching Jesus to the eunuch involve preaching baptism as it obviously did to the Samaritans? Oh, yes. Look at the next verse, verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Tell me where a man who didn't even know about whom he was reading in Isaiah 53 learned about baptism and prompted him to ask the question, what hinders me? from being baptized. It had to be in the preaching of Jesus. Just as the Samaritans heard about baptism in the preaching of Christ back in the earlier part of Acts 8. The Bible is so clear. The Bible is so consistent. The conversions are so consistently clear as we would expect them to be. And so he asked the question, indicative again <clears throat> of his receptiveness, what hinders me from being baptized? And so now, he's ready. He is ready. He wants to do it now. He's learned enough. He wants to be baptized. He doesn't want to put it off. He is ready. He is eager because he understands the essentiality of this action, obviously. And he says... As they came to some water, what hinders me from being baptized? Now, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He made that good confession. But then, verse 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Notice that. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and what? He went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Does that indicate that baptism was an immersion, or that it could have just as easily been sprinkling or pouring? 
Well, there's no question about the fact that I believe if one is unprejudiced in one's view of the matter, that it becomes obvious that they went down into the water for the purpose of immersing the eunuch in that water. And yet, you can read commentators, denominational commentators, who will tell you, well, it may have meant that they went to the water. They went to the water. doesn't necessarily mean they went down into it, but they went to it and they came away from it. But it wouldn't necessarily involve immersion. Now, that's how hard some otherwise intelligent people will work to get around baptism as being immersion. I have a book in my library by the late George DeHoff. And in writing about the conversion of the eunuch, he writes, I have an excerpt from it, preaching on the Ethiopian nobleman is also a good place to tell what baptism is. They came to a certain water. They stopped the chariot, got out of the chariot, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. The word both is in the scripture twice. Both of them went down into the water. They had the baptizing, and they both came up out of the water. These verses do not tell us what baptism is, but they get mighty close to it. Philip and the eunuch went to the water. They went down into the water. They had the baptizing, and they came up out of the water. And then he adds, Romans 6, 4 says, we are buried in baptism. But then he cites this. He says, Brother J. Petty Ezel once preached on this subject. A man said, quote, that was a desert country through which they were passing, end quote. Well, Brother DeHoff adds, in parenthesis, that is not so. I have been through that country, and there is plenty of water. And that's correct from all accounts. It's the plain of Philistia that they were on. That plain is dotted with various bodies of, of water. But the Bible says it was desert. Well, desert, the word desert doesn't mean dry. It means uninhabited, unpopulated. It was sparsely populated. In Matthew 14, the same word is used about the feeding of the 5,000. They were in a desert place there. The multitude was told to sit down on the grass. They were in the desert and told to sit on the grass. Now, if you're in a desert desert, as we think of a desert, you don't have much grass to sit on, do you? You might sit in the sand, but you're not going to sit on the grass. So the use of the word desert, as it's used here and in Matthew 14, verse 15, and again at verse 19, clearly shows that it was simply a sparsely populated area. It doesn't mean that there were no bodies of water available for a baptism. That's the point about desert. But... In fact, he adds, Brother DeHoff says, I've gone along riding in, the air in an air-conditioned bus, getting out to look at the various places where there is water in this same area. This man told Brother Ezel, quote, they had a jug of water along with them, and when the eunuch was ready to be baptized, Philip poured water from the jug and sprinkled him. That was the way they had the baptizing. Brother Ezel said to the man, that sounds reasonable. Let us read it. And so he read. As they went on their way, they came to a certain jug. The eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they went down both into the jug, both Philip and the eunuch. 
And he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the jug, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more. Makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? Well, of course it doesn't. They went down into the water, not into a jug. And obviously, baptism throughout Scripture means nothing more and nothing less than immersion. A burial, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Every example, every precept makes it abundantly clear that baptism is a burial. But beyond that, beyond that, it provides the final step, the final requisite for rejoicing. Why could the eunuch go on his way rejoicing? Because he was redeemed. Not one moment before he went down into that water was he redeemed, but only in that water did the blood of Jesus Christ reach him, just as Scripture abundantly teaches, to allow him to rise, to rejoice, because he rose as one who had been redeemed by the blood of that lamb about whom he was reading in Isaiah's prophecy. That lamb that submitted to a humiliating and horrifying ordeal that he might be able to go on his way rejoicing. And that of all of us, and that all of us might also be able to do the same. The plan is so simple. We've seen it. We go through it every time. We preach. Why? Because we want you to be able to go on your way rejoicing. You're going to have to hear the word, and you've heard it, as the eunuch did. You're going to have to believe what you have heard. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or die in your sins, John eight twenty four. Beyond that, Jesus said you're going to have to repent, or you will all perish, Luke 13, 3 and verse 5. No doubt the eunuch repented. He changed his mind, obviously. That's evident in his request. What hinders me from being baptized? What hinders me? I've seen the light. I've heard the word. I've seen the light of the word, that is. Not some direct miraculous light, but I've seen the light of God's word in the preaching of Philip. I've repented. I'm ready to be baptized. And obviously... He confessed that he believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As Jesus said, we must do, or he'll deny us before the Father. Verse 33 of Matthew 10 tells us. But if we'll confess him, he'll confess us before the Father in heaven. And yes, we must be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said it, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. The eunuch did it and gave us a beautiful illustration of it, as did all others who are listed in the great book of Acts and their examples of it, it is clear to the unprejudiced mind exactly what must be done in order to go on our way rejoicing. And then once we've gone on our way rejoicing, we need to stay on that rejoicing road. And the only way to stay on the rejoicing road is to remain faithful even unto death. This morning, if you need to return to that rejoicing road as a wayward child, 
who has once known what it meant to go on his or her way rejoicing, having done those things that have been outlined in this lesson and that are clearly taught in Scripture, but you know that you can no longer truly rejoice because you no longer are faithful to that which you once obeyed. Then to rejoice again, you must return. And if you'll return in repentance and confession of the public sin in your life, we'll pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you supremely and who will return you to that rejoicing road so that you can leave this auditorium this morning just as the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Will you come as together we stand and sing?